ladies and gentlemen, coming at you live from his own bedroom, your host, Tony. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with Tony, your host, Tony. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today's episode, the Yuba County Five, a case that has puzzled many for decades and personally one of the weirdest cases I've seen um, in my in my in my uh, 18 years of living. Yep, 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 yep. Um, what's more puzzling about this case is the fact that one of them, despite, you know, five victims missing, one of them was never found. Four of them were found unfortunately dead but the fifth one was never found and you know nobody has any idea how they got there what were the circumstances that led to um that led to their deaths that's what's really puzzling about this case um and uh personally i think it's one that you guys will be intrigued so, yeah, before we get into today's episode, ladies and gentlemen, I want to take a quick minute and thank you guys all so much for the support. It means a lot, really, so keep it up, and most of all, tell everybody. Um, what else? Alright, we got a giveaway coming soon. Christmas giveaway coming soon. Long story short, winner gets a timeout with Tony t-shirt. Yeah, how's that? Um, winners, no, not winners. Um, everything will be announced on our Instagram. Uh, I will announce it here as well in the coming episodes, but, you know, keep an eye out for that. And, yeah, that's pretty much it, folks. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Sit back, relax, and crack open a beer, soda, and or water, and enjoy, folks, because this is the Yuba County 5. Alright, folks, what do you say we familiarize ourselves with the case itself? So, the Yuba County Five is a case where all young men from Yuba County, California, all with mild intellectual disabilities or psychiatric conditions, attended a a college basketball game at a California State University um, on the night of February 24th, 1978. Four of them, Bill Sterling, age 29, Jack Hewitt, age 24, Ted Wire, age 32, and Jack Madruga, age 30, were later found dead. The fifth, Gary Mathias, age 25, was never found. Several days after their initial disappearance, the group's Mercury Montego was found abandoned in the remote area of Plumas National Forest on a high mountain dirt road that was far out of their way back to Yuba County. Sorry, Yuba City. Investigators could not determine why the car was abandoned as it was in good working order and could have easily been pushed out of the snowpack it was in. At the time, no trace of the men were found. After the snow melted in June of 1978, four of the men's bodies were found in uh, in and near a trailer camp used by backpackers as shelter deep in forest 20 miles from the car. Only the bones were left of the three bodies in the woods, a result of scavenging animals, but the one in the trailer, Ted Wire, had apparently lived for as long as three months after the men were last seen, starving to death despite an ample supply of food, heating materials nearby. Wire was missing his shoes and investigators found Matthias' own shoes in the nearby woods, suggesting that Matthias had also survived for some time beyond the last night they were seen alive. 
A witness later then came forward, a local man who said he had spent the same night in his oak car just a short distance away from the Montego from where the Montego was found after suffering sorry, suffering from a mild heart attack trying to push it out of the snow. The witness told police that he had seen and heard people around the car that night and twice called for help, only for them to go silent and turn off their flashlights. This and the considerable distance from the car were found sorry, and the considerable distance from the car to where the bodies were found has led to suspicions of foul play. So, you know, as you can see, as as I said before, because the bodies were found in such a weird way, the circumstances, and considering the fact that, you know, all these people had some sort of mental disability, it has people think, you know, this is a murder, but at the same time, it's like, no, this just looks like as a case of five disabled dudes meeting their untimely demise. I don't, I personally don't know what to think of it, even after all this time that I've, you know, familiarized myself with the case and whatnot, it's, it's a little bit weird to, to make a decision, so, yeah, let's get into the background, so, Gary Mathias, a native of Yuba City, joined the United States Army Service in the early 1970s and was stationed in West Germany, while there, he developed, uh, developed uh, severe drug problems. This eventually led to him being diagnosed with schizophrenia and schizophrenia. I don't think I can say that right. And being psychiatrically discharged. Matthias returned to his parents' home in Yuba City and began treatment at a local mental hospital. While it had been difficult at first, he was nearly arrested for assault twice and suffered uh, sorry, and often suffered psychotic episodes that landed him in a local veterans administration hospital. By 1978, Matthias was being treated on an outpatient basis with Stezelzine and Cognitin, and was considered by physicians to be, quote, one of our sterling success cases, end quote. Matthias had supplemented his army disability by working in his stepfather's gardening business. Off the job, outside of his family, he was close friends with four other men, most slightly older than him, who either had slight intellectual disabilities, like Sterling and Hewitt, or were informally considered slow learners, Wire, Madruga, who was also an army veteran. They all either lived in Yuba City or nearby Marysville, California, and like Matthias, each man lived with their parents, all of whom uh, were referred to collectively as the boys. Their favorite leisure activity was sports, and their family said that when they got together, it was usually to play a game or to watch one. They played basketball together as the Gateway Gators, a team that was sponsored by a local program for the Mansley Handicap. On the night of February 25th, 1978, the Gators were due, sorry, the morning of February 25th, 1978, the Gators were due to play their first game in a week-long tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics for which the winners would get a free week in Los Angeles. The five men had prepared the night before, some even laying out their uniforms and asking their parents to wake them up on time. They decided to drive to Chico that night to cheer on the UC Davis basketball team in an away game against Chico State. Madruga, the only member of the group besides Matthias who had a driver's license, drove the group. Sorry, drove the group 50 miles north to Chico to Chico in his turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. The men wore only light coats against the cool temperatures in the upper Sacramento Valley at the time of that night. Sorry, at time that night of that year. So, as you can see, all these fellas, you know, they're trying to live their own lives and whatnot. Here's, here's where shit really hits the fan, alright? Here's where shit really hits the fan. After the Davis team won the game, 
The group got back into Madruga's car and drove a short distance from the Chico State campus to Burr's Market in downtown Chico. There, they bought snacks along with sodas and cartons of milk to drink. It was shortly before the store's 10 p.m. closing that the clerk remembered that the men uh, remembered the men because she was annoyed that such a large group had come in and delayed her from beginning the process of closing the store of the night. None of the men were seen alive after this point. At their homes, some of their parents had stayed up to make sure they returned. One morning came, however, the police and they had not. The police were notified. Police in Butte, I think that's how you pronounce it, and Yuba counties began searching along the road. Sorry, the route the men took to Chico. They found no signs of them at all. A few days later, however, a Plumas National Forest Ranger told investigators that he had seen the Montego parked along the Oroville Quincy Road in the forest on February 25th. At the time, he had not considered it significant since many residents had drove off then that night into the Sierra, uh, into the Sierra Nevada on winter weekends to go cross-country skiing on an extensive trail system. But after he met the uh, missing persons bulletin, he recognized the car and led the deputy deputies to it on February 28th. Inside the car was evidence suggesting that men had been incited between when they were last seen and when it was abandoned. Wrappers and empty cartons and cans they had purchased in Chico were present, along with programs of the basketball game that they had watched neatly folded. Sorry, they had watched and a neatly folded map of California. The discovery of a car raised more questions than it answered. This was its location, 70 miles. Sorry, the first was its location, 70 miles from Chico, far off any direct route to Yuba City or Marysville. None of the men's families could speculate as to why they might have driven up a long and winding dirt road on a winter night deep into a high elevation remote forest without any extra clothing and on a night before a basketball game that they had been talking excitedly amongst themselves for several weeks. Madruga's parents said he did not like the cold weather and had never even been up into the mountains. Sterling's father had once taken his son to the area near where the car was found for a fishing weekend, but the younger man had not enjoyed it and remained at home when his father took later trips there. Similar, police could not figure out why men had abandoned the car. They had reached 4,000 feet in elevation along the road, about where the snow line was a, was at for the time that year, just short of where the road was closed for the winter. The car had become stuck in some snowdrifts and there was evidence that the wheels had been spun out in attempting to get out of it. But police noted that the snow was so deep that the five sorry was not so deep that the five healthy young men would have been able to push it out. Keys were not present, suggesting at first that the car had been abandoned because maybe it wasn't even functioning properly, with the intentioning with the intention of returning to uh, sorry, with the intention of returning later with help. Police hotwired the car and the engine started immediately. The, full, the fuel gauge indicated that the gasoline tank was one quarter full. The mystery deepened after police towed the car back to the station for a more thorough examination. The Montego's undercarriage had no dents, gouges, or even mud scrapes not even in its low-hanging muffler despite having been driven a long distance up a mountain road with many bumps and ruts. Either the driver had been extremely careful or it was someone familiar with the road, a familiarity Madruga is not known to have, nor his family said would Madruga have let someone else drive the car. The car was unlocked and had a window rolled down when it was found. His family indicated it was unlike him to leave the car so unsecured. Efforts to search the vicinity were hampered by a severe snowstorm that same day, and two days later, after searchers and snowcats became 
uh, nearly became lost themselves. Further efforts were called off due to continuing bad weather. No trace of the man was found other than the car. In response to local media coverage of the case, police received several reports of some or all the men being sighted after they left Chico, including some reports of them being seen elsewhere in California or the country. A lot of the reports were easily dismissed, but two of the sightings stood out. One, Joseph Scons of Sacramento told the police he inadvertently wound up spending the night of February 24th and 25th near where the Montego was found. He had driven up there where he had a cabin to check in on the snowpack in advance of the weekend ski trip with his family. At 5pm, around 150 feet of the road, he had gotten stuck in the snow. In the process of trying to free it, he realized he was beginning to experience the early symptoms of a heart attack and went back in, keeping the engine running to provide heat. Six hours later, the, uh, lying in the car, experiencing severe pain, he saw headlights coming up behind him. Looking out, he saw a car parked behind him with headlights on and a group of people around it, one of which seemed to be a woman holding a baby. He called them for help, but they stopped talking and turned their headlights out. Later, he saw more lights from behind him, this time flashlights that also went out when he called to them. After that, Scon said at first he recalled a pickup truck parking 20 feet behind him briefly, then continuing down the road. Later, he clarified to police that he could not be sure of that since, there, since at the time he was almost delirious from the pain he was in. After Scon's car ran out of gas in the early morning hours, his pain subsided enough for him to walk 8 miles down the road to a lodge where the manager drove him back, passing the abandoned Montego at the point where he proceeded where he recalled hearing the voices originate from. Doctors later confirmed that he had indeed experienced a mild heart attack. Where his mother said ignoring someone's pleas for help was not like her son if he, in if he indeed had been present. She recalled how he and Sterling had helped someone they knew get to the hospital after overdosing on Valium. The other notable report was from a woman who worked at a store in the small town from Brown of Brownsville, 30 miles from the point where the car had been abandoned, which they would have had to reach out had they continued the road where the car had been found. On March 3rd, the woman who saw flyers that had been distributed with the men's pictures and information about the $1,215 uh, reward <clears throat> told deputies that four of them had stopped at the store in a red pickup two days after the, dis the disappearance. The store owner corroborated her account. Lewin said she identified the men immediately as from out of the area as their big eyes and facial expressions. Two of the men whom she identified as Hewitt and Sterling were in a telephone booth outside the store while the two went inside. Police said that she was a credible witness and took, and took her account seriously. Additional detail came from the store owner who told investigators that men whom he believed to be Wire and Hewitt came in and bought burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. Wire's brother told the Los Angeles Times that while driving to Brownsville in a different car in apparent, in apparent ignorance of the basketball game seemed completely out of character for him. The owner's description of the two men's behavior seemed consistent with them as Wire would quote anything eat anything he could get his hands on, end quote, and was often accompanied by Hewitt more than any of the other four. However, Hewitt's brother said Jack hated using telephones to the point where he would answer calls for Jack whenever he received any from any of the men in the group. With the evidence not pointing to any clear conclusion as to what happened, the night the, man, the, men's, the five men disappeared, police and the families were not ruling out the possibilities that they had met with foul play. 
The eventual discovery of four of the five men's bodies seemed to suggest otherwise, but raised even more questions about what happened that night and whether at least one of them might have been rescued. On June 4th, with most of the higher elevation snow melted, a group of motorcyclists went to a trailer maintained by Forest and Service at a campsite off the road about 19.4 miles from where the Montego had been found. A front window of the trailer had been broken. When they opened the door, they were overcome by the odor of what turned, to be, turned out to be a decaying body. It was later identified as wires. Searchers returned to Plumas following the road between the trailer and the site of the Montego. The next day, they found the remains and later identified as Maduga and Sterling on opposite sides of the road, 11.4 miles from where the car had been. Maduga's body had been partially consumed by scavenging animals. Only bones remained of Sterling, scattered over a small area. Autopsies showed that they had both died of hypothermia, and deputies speculated that one may have succumbed to the desire for sleep that marks the condition's final stages and the other refused to leave his side, eventually meeting the same fate. Two days later, as part of one of those search parties, Jack Hewitt's father found his son's backbone under a manzanita bush, two miles northeast of the trailer. His shoes and jeans nearby helped identify the body, and the next day, a sheriff deputy found the skull from downhill from the bush, confirmed by dental records to have been Hewitt's. His death, too, was attributed to hypothermia. In an area northwest of the trailer, roughly a quarter mile, searchers found three foresters' blankets, a rusted flashlight by the road, and it could not be determined how long those items had been there. Since Matthias had probably not taken his medication, pictures of him were distributed all over to, mentis all over to mental institutions in California. No trace of him, however, was found. Wire's body was on a bed with eight sheets wrapped around it, including the head. The autopsy showed that he died from a combination of starvation and hypothermia. He had lost nearly half his 200 pounds, and the growth of his beard suggested that he had lived as long as 13 weeks from when he had last shaved. His feet were so badly frostbitten, almost gangrenous. Sorry, gang gangrenous. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm so sorry. On a table next to the bed were some of Wire's personal effects, including his wallet, <clears throat> pardon me, a nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, a gold necklace, which he also wore. Also on the table was a gold watch without its crystal, which Wire's family said was not his, and, and a partially melted candle. He was wearing a villa shirt and lightweight pants, but his shoes could not be found at all. Most puzzling to the investigators was how Wire had come to his fate. No fire had been set in the trailer's fireplace, and despite an ample supply of matches and paperback novels to use as kindling, heavy forestry clothing, which could have kept them kept the men warm, also remained where it had been stored. A dozen sea ration cans from a storage shed outside had been opened and their contents consumed, but a locker in the same shed that held an even greater assortment of dehydrated foods, enough to keep all five men fed for a year, even if it had been necessary, had not even been opened. Similarly, another shed nearby held a blue tank with a valve that had been opened and it would have fed the, trailer, the trailer's heating system. This behavior, however, was consistent with what Wire's families described as lack of common sense arising from his mental disability. He often questioned why he should stop at a stop sign, and one night, he needed to be dragged out of his bed while his bedroom ceiling was burning in a house fire since he was worried about missing his job the next day if he left his bed. 
It also seemed that Wire had not been alone in the trailer and that Matthias and Hewitt had possibly been in there with him. Matthias' tennis sneakers were in the trailer and the sea rations had been opened with a P-38 can opener which only Matthias and Madruga would have been familiar with from their military service. Matthias, since his feet had also probably been stolen from Frostbite, could have decided to put Wire's shoes on instead of uh, instead if he had ventured outside. His sheets all over Wire's body suggested that one of the others had been in there with him, and his gangrene feet would have been too much pain for him to pull them over his body himself. Even knowing that four of the five men had died in the Sierra, investigators still could not explain what had led to this death to these deaths. They still had no way, no explanation for why the men were there, although they learned, they later learned that Matthias had friends in the small town of Formstown, and police believed that it, it, it was possible that in an attempt to visit them on the way back home, they may have taken the wrong turn near Orville that put him up that mountain road. But for whatever reason, the men had left Montego, they had, instead of going back down the road, where they passed the lodge Scons later returned to, continued along the road in the direction they were originally going. Purposeful motion like that is not consistent with the circular patterns traveled by those who genuinely believe themselves lost. The day before the, women, the men went missing, a forest service snowcat had gone along the road in that road sorry along the road in that direction to clear snow off the trailer so it would not collapse it was possible police believed that the group had decided to follow the tracks it left through snowdrifts high to wherever they led and believed that shelter was not too far away madruga and starling probably succumbed to hypothermia midway along the walk to the trailer it's also assumed that once they found the trailer the three broke the window to enter and since it was locked, they may have believed it was private property and feared arrest for uh, theft if they used anything else they found there. After Wire died or the others believed he had, they may perhaps chose an attempt to return to civilization by different routes, overland or on foot. Either way, regardless of what happened, ladies and gentlemen, Matthias has yet to be found and as of today, no one knows what happened to, to, to these five fellas. Whether it was foul play or just them being at the wrong place at the wrong time, who knows? But, yeah, there you have it. Personally, if you ask me, I, hmm, I believe that they, they were simply lost. I don't really suspect foul play, and if it is, it's... And if it is, maybe one of them went batshit crazy. But I mean, none of them were found with like signs of, you know, murder or anything like that. But to be fair, the bodies were badly decomposed. And, um, you know, I, I like to assume that, you know, coming to the conclusion that it was hypothermia kind of, you know, didn't really help much it was just you know sort of like a cover answer i don't know but personally if you ask me yeah i believe that this was a whole simple case of a lost tourist um let me know what you guys think um as always ladies and gentlemen thank you guys all so much for listening it means a lot really so keep up the support and most of all tell everybody spread the word tell Tell the mailman, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your co-workers, shit, bro, fuck it. Tell the, um, tell the crackhead outside of 7-Eleven, bro. Tell everybody, everybody. 
and uh yeah so keep stay sharp for um for our announcements for um what's, what's the word for the giveaway t-shirt giveaway yeah and uh yeah i think that's pretty much it ladies and gentlemen so once again ladies and gentlemen we thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and we'll catch you later this week ladies and gentlemen thank you goodbye and most of all don't drink and drive Okay, show's over. Please get out. Thank you.